Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. Today, my guest is Manoj Saxena. He is the executive chairman of Cognitive Scale. Before that, he was the GM of IBM Watson, the first GM, in fact. He's also a successful entrepreneur who founded, founded and sold two venture-backed companies within five years. He's the founding manager director of the Entrepreneurs, Entrepreneurs Fund for a $100 million seed fund focused exclusively on cognitive computing. He holds an MBA from Michigan State University and a master's in management sciences from the Birla Institute of Technology and Science in Palani, India. Welcome to the show, Manoj. Thank you, Ryan. You're, you're well known for uh, skewing the term artificial intelligence and in favor of um, cognitive computing. Even, even your bio says cognitive computing. Why is that? Well, I think if you look at um, AI, uh, AI to me is the science of making intelligent systems and intelligent machines. Cognitive computing, and, and, and most of AI, is around replacing the human mind uh, into creating systems that do the jobs of human beings. I think the biggest opportunity, and has been proven out in multiple research reports, is augmenting human beings. Uh, so AI for me is not artificial intelligence. AI for me is augmented intelligence, is how you could use machines to augment and extend the capabilities of human beings. And cognitive computing uses artificial intelligence technologies and others to pair man and machine in a way that augments human decision-making and augments human experience. So I look at cognitive computing as the application of artificial intelligence and other technologies to create the, I call it the Iron Man Jarvis suit that makes every human being a a superhuman being. That's what cognitive computing is. And that was frankly the category that we started off when I was running IBM Watson as as what we believed was the next big thing uh, to happen in IT and in enterprise. You know, when, um, when AI first was conceived and the, they met at Dartmouth and did all that, they thought they could kind of knock it out in the summer. And I think the thesis was, Minsky later said it was uh, just like physics had just a few laws and electricity had just a few laws. They thought there were just a couple of laws. Yeah. And then AI's had a few false starts, you know, expert systems and, and so forth. But right now, there's, um, there's an enormous amount of, of optimism about it. Uh, of what we're going to be able to do? What's changed in the last, say, decade? I think a couple of dimensions on that. One is, when AI initially got going, the whole intention was AI to model the world. Okay. Then it shifted towards AI to model the human mind. And now, where I believe the most potential is, is to AI to model human and business experiences. Because each of those are a gigantic, the first one, AI to model the world and AI to model the mind, are massive exercises. In many cases, we don't even know how the mind works. So how do you model something that you don't understand? And, and the world is too complex and too dynamic to be able to model something that large. I believe the more pragmatic way is to use AI to model micro experiences, whether it's an Uber app or a Waze 
uh, or it is uh, to model a business process, whether it's a claim settlement or underwriting or a management of diabetes. So I think that's where the third age of AI will be more around not modeling the world or modeling the mind, but to model a human experience and a business process. So is that saying we've lowered our expectations of it? I think we have specialized in it. So if you look at the human mind again, you don't go from being a child to a genius overnight, let alone a genius that understands all sciences and all languages and all countries. So I think we have gotten more pragmatic and more outcome driven rather than more research and science driven on how and where to apply AI. I notice you've, you've twice used the word the mind and not the brain. Yeah. Um, is, is that deliberate? And if so, what, where do you think the mind comes from? So I think there is a lot of hype and there is a lot of misperception about AI right now. You know, I, I, I like saying that AI today is both uh, AI equals artificially inflated and AI equals amazing innovations. Uh, and I think in the realm of AI equals artificially inflated, there are five myths, but one of the first myths in there is that AI equals replacement of the human mind. And I separate the human brain from the human mind and from human consciousness. So at best, what we are trying to do is emulate functions of a human brain in certain parts of AI, not alone, yet no, leave alone human mind or human consciousness. We talked about this last time, you know, uh, we don't even know what consciousness is, other than doctors saying whether the patient is dead or alive, there is no consciousness detector. And human mind, you know, there is a saying that probably you need a quantum machine to really figure out how, how a human mind works. It's not a Boolean machine or a one human machine. Uh, it's a different kind of a processor. But a human brain, I think, can be broken down and, and can be augmented through AI to create exceptional outcomes. And we're seeing that happen in radiology, at Wall Street, the quants and other areas. So I think that's much more exciting to apply AI pragmatically uh, into these niches. You know, it's really interesting because there's been a 20-year e effort called the Open Worm Project to take the nematode worm's brain, which is 302 neurons, mm -hmm. and to model it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and even after 20 years, people in the project say it may not be possible. And so um, if you can't do a nematode, well, like one thing's for certain, you're not going to do a human before you do a nematode worm. Exactly, exactly. You know, the way I say that, Byron, is that I'm more interested in richer and not smarter. You know, we need to get smarter, but also we need to equally get richer. By richer, I don't mean just making money. By richer, I mean how do we use AI to improve our society and our businesses and our way of life. And uh, that's where I think coming at it outcome in rather than science out is where I think is a more pragmatic way to apply AI. So you mentioned five misconceptions. That was one of them. What are, what are some of the other ones? So the first misconception was um, AI equals replacing human minds. Second misconception is AI is the same as natural language processing, um, which is far from the truth. NLP is just a technique within AI. You know, it's like saying my ability to understand and read a book is same as my brain, right? So, so that's the second misconception. The third is AI is same as big data and, and analytics. You know, big data and analytics are tools that are used to capture more input for an AI to work on. Saying that big data is same as AI is saying that just because I can sense more, I can, I can be more smarter. 
What big data is giving you is more input. It's giving you more senses. It's not making you smarter or more intelligent. So that's the third myth. And the fourth myth is that AI is something that is better implemented horizontally versus vertically. I believe true AI and successful AI, particularly in the business world, will have to be verticalized AI. Because it's one thing to say, I've got an AI, is another thing to say, I have an AI that understands underwriting versus AI understands diabetes versus AI that understands uh, Super Bowl ads, right? And each of these require a domain-specific optimization of data and models and algorithms and experience. And so that's the, that's, the, that's the fourth one. And the fifth one is that AI is all about technology. At best, AI is only half about technology. The other half of the equation has to do with skills, has to do with new processes and methods and governance on how to manage AI responsibly in the enterprise. Just like when the internet came about, you didn't have the methods and processes to create a web page, to build a website, to manage the website from getting hacked, to manage updates of the website. Similarly, there is a whole AI lifecycle management, and that's what Cognitive Scale focuses on, which is how do you create and deploy and manage AI responsibly and at, responsibly and at scale, because unlike traditional IT systems, that did not learn. There's a mostly rules-based systems, and rules-based systems don't learn. And AI-based systems is patterns-based, and it learns from patterns. So unlike traditional IT systems that did not learn, AI systems have an ability to self-learn and geometrically improve themselves. So if you can't get visibility and control over these AI systems, you could have a massive problem of rogue AI, is what cognitive scale calls it, versus responsible AI. So, you know, I call it these, uh, you know, that uh, character Chucky, you know, from the scare horror movie. He's like having a bunch of Chuckies running around in your enterprise, opening up your systems. So what is needed is a, co a comprehensive end-to-end -end view of managing AI from design, from deployment, to production and, and, and governance of it at scale. And um, that requires a lot more than technology. That requires skills and methods and processes. Um when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned that uh, some people were having difficulty scaling their, their projects that they began in their enterprise, making them kind of enterprise ready. Uh, talk about that for a moment. Why is that and is, what's the solution to that? Yeah, so when I talk to, um, you know, I've talked to over 600 customers just in the last five years and, and everything from IT level to board level and CEO level, there are three big things that are going on that they're struggling with getting value of AI. Uh, number one is AI is seen as something that can be done by data scientists and analytics people. AI is far too important to be left to just data scientists. Uh, AI has to be done as a business strategy. AI has to be done top down to drive business outcomes, not bottom up as a way of finding data patterns. So that's the first part. I see a lot of science projects that are happening. Uh, one of the customers called it dots versus bubbles. He says, you know, there are lots of dots of projects that are going on, but where do I know where the big bubbles are, which really move the needle for a multi-billion dollar business that I have? So there is a lot of, I call it bottom-up engineering experiments that are going on uh, that are not moving the needle. That's one thing. Number two is the data scientists uh, and, and um, application developers are struggling with taking these projects into production 
because they are not able to provide fundamental capabilities to AI that you need in the enterprise, such as uh, explainability. I believe 99.9% .9 of the AI companies today that are funded will not make it in the next three years because it, it lacks some fundamental capabilities like explainability. You know, it's one thing to find pictures of cats on the internet using a deep learning network. It's another thing to explain to a chief risk officer why a particular claim was denied and the patient died and now they have a $100 million lawsuit. And the AI has to be responsible and trustworthy and explainable to say why was the decision taken at that time. And because of lack of these kinds, and there are five such capabilities, we can cover that some other time, that we call it as enterprise-grade AI. Um, because of that, most of these projects are not able to move into production because they're not able to meet the requirement from a security and performance and auditability perspective. And then last but not the least, these skills are very sparse. There are very few skills. Uh, someone told me there are only 7,000 people in this world who have the skills to be able to understand and run uh, AI models and networks uh, like deep learning and, and others. Imagine that, 7,000. I know of a bank who's got 22,000 developers, one bank alone, right? So there is a tremendous gap uh, in the way AI is being practiced today versus the skills that are available in trying to get this production ready. So that's another thing that Cognitive Scale is doing is we have created this platform to democratize AI, is how do you take application developers and data scientists and machine learning people and get them to collaborate to deploy AI in 90-day increments. You know, they have this method called 10-10-10, where in 10 hours we select a use case, and in 10 days we build a reference application using their data, and in 10 weeks we take them into production. And we do that by helping these the groups of people collaborate on a new platform called Cortex that lets you take AI safely and securely into production at scale. Backing that up a little bit, so there are European efforts to require that if the AI makes a decision about you, that you have a right to understand why, if it de de denies you alone. Yeah. So you're saying that that is something that isn't happening now, but it is something that's possible. It is actually, actually there are efforts that are going on right now. DARPA has got some initiatives around this notion of XAI, explainable AI. And um, I know that you know other companies are exploring this, but this is still, at a very low level technology effort, it is not coming up as an explainable AI at a business process level and at an industry level because the explainability requirements of an AI vary process to process and it vary from industry to industry. The explainability requirements for a throat cancer specialist to talk about why he recommended a treatment are different than explainability requirement for an investment advice manager in wealth management who said, here's the portfolio I recommended to you with the assistance of AI. So explainability exists at two levels. It exists at a horizontal level as a technology, and it exists at an industry-optimized level. Uh, and that's why I believe AI has to be verticalized and industry-optimized for it to really take off. So you, th you think that's a valid uh, request to ask of an AI system? I think it's a requirement. Yeah. It's but not if, a request. You, if you ask a Google person, uh, I rank number three for this search. Yeah. Somebody else ranks number four. Yeah. Why, why am I three and they're four? Yeah. They'd be like, I don't know. Exactly. I mean, Six thousand exactly. different things going on. Yeah. So wouldn't wouldn't an explainability requirement impede the development of the technology? 
or it can create a new class of leaders who know how to crack that nut. That's the basis on which we have founded Cognitive Scale. This is one of the six requirements as we talk about in creating enterprise-grade AI. So one of the big things, and I learned this while we were doing Watson, was how do you build AI systems you can trust as a human being? And explainability is one of them. Another one is recommendations with reasons. Can your AI, when it gives you an insight, can it also give you evidence as to why am I suggesting this as the best course of action for you, right? That builds trust in the AI, and that's when the human being can take action. So evidence and explainability are two of those dimensions that are requirements of uh, you know, enterprise-grade AI and for AI to be successful at large. The 7,000 uh, people who understand that number, do you, th assuming it's true, is that a function of how difficult it is or how new it is? I think it's a function of how different a skill set it is that we are trying to bring into the enterprise. It is also how difficult it is, but it's, it's like the web. I mean, I keep going back to the internet. We are like where the internet was in 1997. There were probably at that time only a few thousand people who knew to how to develop HTML-based applications or web pages. AI today is where the internet was in 1996 and 97, where people are building a web page by hand. It's far different from building a web application, which is connecting a series of these web pages and orchestrating them to a business process to drive an outcome. And that's far different than optimizing that process to an industry and managing it in the, at, at a requirement of um, you know, explainability, governance, and scalability. So there is a lot of innovation around enterprise AI that is yet to come about, and we have not even scratched the surface yet. So when the web came out in 97, uh, people rushed to have a web department in yep. the company. Uh, and, and are we there? Are we making AI departments? And is that like not the way to do it? Absolutely. No, I think, I won't say it's not the way to do it. I think it's a required first step to really understand and learn. And not only just AI, even blockchain. I mean, Cognitive Scale calls it blockchain with a brain. And I think that's the real biggest sort of uh, transformation that's yet to happen on the horizon in the next three to four years where you start building self-learning and self-assuring processes. So coming back to the web analogy, um, that was the first step of three or four in making uh, business become an e-business. So 25 years ago, when the web came about, everyone became an e-business. Every process became webified. Now with AI, everyone will become an i-business or a C business, a cognitive business, and everyone is gonna get cognitized. Every process is gonna get cognitized. Every process will learn from new data and new interactions. And the steps they will go through is not unlike what they went through with the web. Initially, they had a group of people building web apps, and the CEO said after a while, 1998, I spent half a million dollars, all I have is an intelligent digital brochure on the website, what has it done for my business? That is exactly the stage we are at. Then someone else came up and said, hey, I can connect a shopping cart to this particular set of web pages. I can build a payment system around it. I can create an e-commerce system out of it. And I have this open source thing called uh, you know, JBoss that you can build off of. That's kind of similar to what Google TensorFlow is doing today for AI. Then there is the next generation companies like Siebel and Salesforce that came in and said, I can build for you a commercial web-based CRM system. Similarly, that's what Cognitive Scale does, is we are building the next generation intelligent CRM system or intelligent HRM system that lets you get value out of the systems in a reliable and scalable manner.
That's sort of the same progression that we're going to go through with AI, like we went through with the web. And there is still uh, a tremendous amount of innovation and new market leaders. I believe there will be a new $100 billion AI company and that will get formed in the next seven to 10 years. So on a time scale, the web, you know, so say 95s, you know, when, and then 2000, we have, a lot. so what's the time scale on AI going to be? Is it going to be faster or slower then? I think it'll be faster. I think it'll be faster for multiple reasons. Um, we have, and I gave a little TED talk on this, around this notion of a super convergence of technologies. When the web came about, we were shifting from just one technology to another, we're moving from client server to web. Right now, you've got these super six technologies that are converging that will make AI adoption that much, much faster, which is cloud, mobile, social, big data, and blockchain, right? All of these are coming together at a, and, and analytics and at a, at a rate and pace that is enabling compute and access at a scale that was never possible before. So, so that, when you combine that with an ability for a business to get disrupted geometrically, one of the biggest reasons that AI is different than the web was that the, those web systems are rules-based still. They did not geometrically learn and improve. The concern and the worry that the CEOs and boards have this time around is, unlike a web-based system, an AI-based system improves with time and learns with time. So if I don't get on it now, Either I'm going to be geometrically getting ahead of the competition, or I'm going to be geometrically get left behind. What some people call as the Uberification of businesses. So there is this threat and an opportunity to use AI as a great transformation and accelerator for their business model. And, and that's where I think this becomes an incredibly exciting technology riding on the back of the super convergence that we have. So if, if a CEO is listening, and they hear that and they can, they say that sounds plausible, what is my first step? I think there are, there are three steps. The first step is to educate yourself and your leadership team on the business possibilities of AI. So AI powered business transformation, not technology possibilities of AI, but so one is just education, educate yourself, right? Second is then to start experimenting and experiment by deploying 90-day projects, a few hundred thousand dollars, not a two-year project with multiple million dollars put in there. So you can really start understanding the possibilities. And also you can start cutting through the vendor hype, you know, uh, about what is product and what is PowerPoint. The narrative for AI, unfortunately today, is being written by either Hollywood or by glue-sniffing marketers from large companies. And so the 90-day projects will help you cut through it. So one is educate, second is experiment, and third is enable. Is enable your workforce to really start having the skill sets and the governance and the processes, and enable an ecosystem uh, to really build out the right set of partners with technology, data, skills, to, to start cognitizing your business. You know, AI's uh, always kind of been benchmarked against games and what games it can beat people at. And that's because I assume because games are these closed environments with fixed rules. Is that the way an enterprise should go about looking for candidate projects? Look for things that look like games? I have, I have a stack of resumes. I have a bunch of employees who got great performance reviews. I have a bunch of employees that, that didn't. Do I, 
what which ones match. So yeah. I, I don't think, I think that's the wrong uh, metaphor to use. I think the way to have a business think about AI is in the context of three things. Their customers, their employees, and their business processes. They have to think about how can I use AI in a way that my customer experience is transformed. That every customer feels very individualized and personalized in terms of how I'm engaging them. So that's one. So customer experiences that are highly personalized and highly contextualized. Second is employee expertise. How do I augment my experience and expertise of my employees such that every employee becomes my smartest employee? This is the Iron Man Jarvis suit. Is how do I upskill my employees to be the smartest at making decisions, to be the smartest at handling exceptions? The third thing is my business processes. How do I implement business processes that are constantly learning on their own from new data and from new customer interaction. So I think if I were a, a CEO and a business, I would look at it through those three vectors and then implement projects in 90-day increments to learn about what's possible across those three dimensions. So talk a minute about cognitive scale and how does it, how does it fit into that mix? So Cognitive Scale was founded by uh, you know, a series of executives who were part of IBM Watson. So it was me and uh, the guy who ran Watson Labs, and we ran it for the first three years. And one thing we immediately realized was how powerful and transformative this technology is. And we, we came away with three things. We, we realized that for AI to be really successful, it has to be verticalized and it has to really be optimized to an industry. Number two, that the power of AI is not in a human being asking the question of an AI, but it's the AI telling the human being what questions to ask and what information to look for. We call it the known unknowns versus unknown unknowns. Today, why is it that I have to ask an Alexa? Why does an Alexa tell me when I wake up that, hey, while you were sleeping, Brexit happened, and if I'm an investment advisor, here are the 17 customers you should call today and take them through the implication because they're probably panicking. So it's using a system which is the opposite of a BI. A BI is a known unknown. I know I don't know something, therefore I run a query. An AI is an unknown unknown, which you're tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you ought to know it or you gotta do this. So that was a second thesis. One is verticalized, second is unknown unknowns. And the third is quick value in 90 day increments. That this has to be delivered, it's using the method called you know, 10, 10, 10, where we can stand up little AIs in 90 day increments. So that company got started about three and a half years ago, um, and the mission is to create exponential business outcomes in healthcare, financial services, telecom, and media. And the company's done incredibly well. We have investments from Microsoft, Intel, IBM, Norwest, raised over $50 million. They have offices in uh, Austin, New York, London, and India. And the who's who, there are over 30 customers who are deploying this and now scaling this as an enterprise-wide initiative. And it's again built on this whole hypothesis of driving exponential business outcomes, not driving science projects with AI. So your um, Cognitive Scale is an Austin-based company. Mm -hmm. We're GigaOM is an Austin-based company. Um, how is it that, and there's a lot, there are a lot of, there is a lot of AI activity in Austin. How did that come about, do you think? And, and is, is Austin an AI hub? Absolutely. So that's one of the exciting things I'm working on. Um, so one of my roles is executive chairman of Cognitive Scale. The other role is I have a $100 million seed fund 
that focuses on investing in vertical AI companies. And my third thing is we just announced last year an initiative called AI Global out of Austin and whose focus is on fostering the deployment of responsible AI. And I believe um, you know, East Coast and West Coast will have their own technology innovations in AI. AI will be bigger than the internet was. AI will be at the scale of what electricity was. Everything we know around us, from our chairs and our light bulbs and our you know, glasses are gonna have elements of AI woven into it over the next 10 years. And I believe one of the opportunities that Austin has, and that's why we founded AI Global and AI Austin was, how do you help businesses implement AI in a responsible way so that it creates good for the business in an ethical and a responsible manner? And part of the ethical use of AI and responsible of use of AI involves bringing a community of people together in Austin uh, and be, have Austin be known as the place to go for designing responsible AI systems. So we have the UT Law School working with us, the UT Design School, the UC Business School, the UC IT School, all of them are working together as one. Other is the mayor's office, the, the city uh, is working together extensively. We <coughs> also have some local companies um, like USAA who's coming as a, as a founding member of this. And what we are now doing is we are helping companies come up with come to us for getting a prescription on how to design, deploy, and manage responsible AI systems. And I think there's tremendous opportunities like you and I talk for GigaOM and AI Global to start doing things together to foster um, you know, implementation of responsible AI systems. You know, you may have heard that IBM Watson beat Ken Jennings at Jeopardy. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and he gave a TED Talk about that, and he said that there was a, there was a graph that showed, uh, as, as Watson got better, it would show. And he said every week they would like send him an update and, 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 and their, their line would be closer to him. And he said he looked at it with dread. He goes, he said, that's really what AI is. It's not the Terminator coming for you. It's, it's the one thing you do great that just gets better and better and better and better. So you talked about Hollywood driving the narrative of AI, but one of the narratives, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about the effect that AI is going to have on, on jobs. Um, some people believe it's going to eat a bunch of low-skill work and we'll have like a permanent unemployment and the depression and all of that. And some people say, no, it's going to just create a bunch of jobs. And just like any other transformative technology, everything is just going to raise productivity, which is how we raise wages. Yep. So which of those narratives or a different one do you... Do you yeah, follow? And, and, and there's a third group that says that AI could be our last biggest innovation, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to wipe us out as a species. So I think the first two, in fact, all three are true, elements of it. It's going to wipe way, us out as a civilization? In, if you don't make the right decisions. Huh. I think it absolutely has. All right, well, go through, I'm, go I'm through hearing things all, like right? autonomous warfare, which scares uh -huh. the daylights out of me. Um, so, so let's take all three. In terms of AI first dislocating jobs, I think every major technology from the steam engine, to the tractor, to semiconductors, has always dislocated jobs, and AI will be no different. There's a projection that by year 2020, 18 million jobs will be, to be dislocated by AI. And these are tasks that are routine tasks that can be automated by a machine. Hold, and on, I think, hold, hold on just a second, that's, that's 27 months from now. Yeah, 18 million jobs. Um, who would say that? It's a, it's a report that was done, I believe it was World Economic Forum, but here's the thing, I think that's quite true. And 
But I don't worry about that as much as I worry about the 1.3 billion jobs that AI will uplift the roles on. That's why I look at augmentation as a bigger opportunity than replacement of human beings. Yes, it is going to remove and kill some jobs, but there is a much, much larger opportunity by using AI to augment and skill your employees, just like the web did. You know, the web gave you reach and access and connection at a scale that was never possible before, just like the telephone did before that, and the telegraph did before that. And I think AI is going to give us a tremendous amount of opportunities for creating, you know, someone called it the new collar jobs, I think it was IBM, not just the blue collar or white collar, but a new collar jobs. And I do believe in that. I do believe there is an entire range of jobs that, that AI will come about. So that's one. The second narrative was around AI, you know, uh, being the last big innovation that we would make. And I think that is absolutely the possibility. If you even look at internet when it came about, the top two applications in the early days of the internet was gambling and pornography, right? Then we got to census as a society and we started putting the internet to work for the betterment of businesses and people. And we made choices that made us use internet for, for greater good. I think the same thing is gonna happen with AI. Uh, today, AI is being used for everything from, you know, parking tickets being uh, contested to Starbucks using it for coffee to concert tickets being scalped. Uh, but I think there is going to be decisions as a society that we have to make on how we use AI responsibly. The part that, you know, I've heard the whole Elon Musk and uh, Zuckerberg argument, uh, I, I believe both of them are right. I think it all comes down to the choices we make as a society and the way we skill our workforce on using AI as the next competitive advantage. Now, the big unknown in all of this is what a bad actor and nation states can do using AI. And the part that I still don't have a full answer to, but worries the hell out of me, is this notion of autonomous warfare, where people think by using AI, they can actually restrict the damage and they can start taking out targets in a very finite way. But the problem is there's so much that is unknown about an AI. An AI today is not trustworthy. And when you put that into things that can be weapons of mass destruction, and if something goes wrong because the technology is still maturing, you're talking about cre creating massive destruction at a scale that we have never seen before. So uh, I would say all three elements of the narrative, you know, Removing jobs, creating new jobs, creating an existential threat to us as a race, all elements of those are the possibility going forward. The well, one that I'm the most excited about is how it's going to extend and enhance our jobs. Well, let's come back to jobs in just a minute, but yeah. you brought up warfare. Um, first of all, there, there appear to be 18 countries working to make uh, AI-based systems. Mm -hmm. and. And their arguments are twofold. The one argument is there's 17 other people working to develop it. If I don't, yeah, someone else will. And second, that that you can make systems. So right now, uh, a military drops a bomb and it it blows up everything. Yeah. So let's take a landmine. Yeah. A landmine is an AI. Yeah. It will blow up anything over 40 pounds. Yeah. And so if somebody came and said, I can make an, an AI 
uh, a landmine that sniffs for gunpowder and only blow up somebody who's carrying a weapon. Mm -hmm. Then somebody else says, I can make one that actually scans the person and looks for drab and so forth. Yep. So if you take warfare as, as something that is a, a reality of life, why wouldn't you want systems that were more yep. discriminatory? Uh, and this is a great question. And I believe that will absolutely happen and that will probably need to happen but in period of time, over a period of time, maybe that's a five or 10 years away. The part that's, that we're in the most dangerous time right now, where the hype about AI has far exceeded the reality about AI. These AIs are extremely unstable systems today. Like I said before, they are not evidence-based. There is no kill switch on an AI. There is no evidence, there is no explainability. There is no performance that you can really figure out. So take your example of something that can sniff a gunpowder and will explode. What if I store that mine in a gun depot in the middle of a city and it sniffs the gunpowder from other weapons that are there and it blows itself up? Today we don't have the visibility and control at a fine-grained level with AI to warrant an application of it at that scale. My view is there are two vectors on this. One is people will learn this. I think it will become a, per a prerogative for everyone to get on it as nation states and, and you saw Putin talk about it saying, he who controls AI will control the future world. So, so that, I think, there is no putting the genie back in the bottle. I think just like we did with the rules of war, and just like we did with nuclear uh, uh, warfare, there will be new Geneva Convention-like uh, rules that we will have to come up with as a society on how and where these responsible AI systems have to be deployed and managed and measured. So just like we have done that for chemical warfare, I think there will be new rules will come up with AI-based warfare. But the trick with it is uh, a, nu a nuclear event is a binary thing. It either happened or it didn't. Um, a, a chemical weapon, you know, there's a list of chemicals. That's a binary thing. Yeah. AI isn't, though. It's, you can say your, your, your dog food dish that refills automatically when it's empty, that's AI. Yeah. And so how would you even, how would you even phrase the law, uh, assuming people followed it, how would you phrase it in, in just plain English? Yeah, I think, the, again, it's in, in, in a very simple way, uh, you know, you've heard Isaac Asimov's, you know, three rules in iRobot. Uh, I think as a society, we will have to come up with, in fact, I'm doing a conference on this next year in uh, north of London uh, with the Ditchley Foundation around how do you use AI and drones in warfare in a responsible way. And I think it will require a collective mindset and, and will from the nations to propose something like this. So I think the first event has not happened yet. You could argue the fake news event that happened was one of the big AI events that's happened, right? That, uh, that altered the direction of, uh, uh, potentially, of uh, a presidential race. And I think we're gonna see, people are worried about hacking. I'm more worried about attacks that you can't trace and you know, the source of, and I think that's, that's work to be done going forward. There was, um there was a weapon system that was made that did make autonomous kill decisions. And then the, 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 the militaries that were evaluating it said, we need it to have a human in the middle. In the loop, so yep. they, they added that. Of course, you can turn that off. Yep. So it, it, it's, it sounds, it, it's almost intractable to kind of define it in such a way. But it sounds like you're in favor of AI weapons as long as they're not buggy. I, I'm not in favor of AI weapons. I believe... I mean, I am, in general, I guess as a person, I'm anti-war, but is one of those human frailties and human 
limitations that war is a necessary, uh, as ugly as a part it is of our lives. And I think people and countries will adopt AI and they will start using it for warfare. Uh, what is needed, I think, is a new set of um, agreements and a new set of principles on how they go about using it, much like they do with chemical weapons and nuclear warfare. I don't think it's something we can control. It's what we can do is we can regulate and manage and enforce it. But do you believe, so moving past warfare, do you believe Putin's statement that he who controls AI in the future will control the world? Absolutely. I think that's a given. Um, so back to jobs for a moment. Um, so working through the, the, the examples you gave, it is true that, that steam and electricity and me mechanization uh, destroy jobs. Yeah. But what they didn't do is cause unemployment. Mm -hmm. That uh, unemployment in this country, in the U.S. at least, has been between 5 and 10% for 200 years, other than the Depression, which wasn't technology's fault. Um, so what has happened is, yes, we made... We, we put all of the, the telegram, we put all of the elevator operators out of business when we invented the button. Mm -hmm. And you no longer had to have a person. Mm -hmm. But we never saw a spike in unemployment. Mm -hmm. Is that what's going to happen? Because if you really lost 18 million jobs in the next 27 months, that would just be, I mean, that, that, the depression, that would be massively bigger. That's 20%. Well, anyway, do you think yeah. that we're going to have a... No, but here's the thing. That 18 million number is a global number. Oh, okay. okay? It's not a, a U.S. number. Okay. It's a global number. Uh, fair enough, then. Um, and you have to put this number in context of the total workforce. Right. So today, there are somewhere between 700 million to 1.3 billion mm -hmm. workers that are employed globally. And 18 million is a, is, a, is a fraction of that. That's number one. Number two, I believe there is a much bigger potential in using AI as a muse and AI as a partner to create a whole new class of jobs rather than be afraid of the machine replacing the job. Machine have always replaced the jobs and, and they will continue to do that. But I believe, and this is where I get worried about our education system, and one of the first things I did with Watson as we started a university program to start skilling people uh, with the next generation skill sets that are needed to build, deploy, and manage AI systems. So I do believe that over the next decade, or for the matter, next five decades, there is a whole new class of human creativity and human potential that can and will be unleashed through AI by creating a whole new types of jobs. If you look at cognitive scale, I mean, we are almost we're somewhere around 160 people today. Half of those jobs did not exist four years ago. And many of the people who would have never even considered a job in a tech company that are employed by Cognitive Scale today. We have linguists who are joining a software company today. Okay, we have now, we have made the job into computational linguistics, where they're taking what they knew of linguistics, combining it with a machine, and creating a whole new class of applications and systems. So uh, we have people who are creating a whole new type of testing mechanisms for AI. Um, these testers never existed before. We have people who are now designing and composing intelligent agents using AI uh, with skills that they are blending from data science to application development to machine learning. These are new skills that have come about and uh, not to speak about salespeople and business strategists who are coming up with new applications of this. So I tend to believe that this is one of the most exciting times uh, from the point of view of economic growth and jobs uh, that we and every country on this world has 
in front of them. It all depends on how we commercialize it. One of the great things we have going for the US is a very rich and vibrant venture investment community and a very rich and vibrant stock market that values innovation, not just revenues and profits. So as long as we have those, and as long as you have patent coverage and good enforcement of law, uh, I see a very good future for this country. So there, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, there was a, a debate in this country, in the United States, about the value of post-literacy education. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Yeah. Why yeah. would you, anybody need to go to school? Most people, why would most people who are just gonna be farmers yeah. need to go to school after they learn how to read? And then along came some people who said the jobs of the future, i.e. industrial revolution jobs, will require more education. And so the US was the first country in the world to guarantee every single person could go to high school, yeah. could go all the way through. So Mark Cuban said if he were coming up now, he would study philosophy. And so he's the one who said, you know, the first trillionaires are gonna be AI people. So he's bullish on it. He said, I would study uh, philosophy because yeah. that's what you need to know. If, if you were to advise young people, what should they study today to be relevant, to have relevant and employable in the future? I think that's a great question. I would say I would study three different things. I would study the whole process of, I, I would study, um, sort of linguistics, I would study literacy, I mean, I would study literature, linguistics, soft sciences, right? Things around how decisions are made, how the human mind works, cognitive sciences, things like that, that's one area. The second thing I would study is business models and how businesses are built and designed and scaled. Uh, and the third thing I would study is technology, is really understand the art of the possible with these systems. It's at the intersection of these three things. The, the creative aspects of design and you know, literature and philosophy you know, around how the human mind works to the commercial aspect of what to make and how to build a successful business model to the technological uh, underpinnings of how to power these business models. As I would say, those, I would be focusing on the intersection of those three skills. So, and all embraced under the umbrella of entrepreneurship. Right. I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship. I think they are the ones who would really lead this company forward, entrepreneurs, both in big companies and small. Um, you and I have, have spoken on the topic of, of, of an automatic, uh, an, um, an artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. And you said uh, it was 40, 50 years away, was just a number, and that it might require quantum computers. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, um, you mentioned Elon. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and his fear, the existential threat. Now, he believes, evidently, that we're very close to an AGI, and that's where the fear is. Mm -hmm. That's what, what he's concerned about. That's what Hawking is concerned about. So you, you said, I agree with the concern. If we, if we screw up, it's an existential threat. How do you reconcile that with, I don't think we'll have AGI for, for 50, 40 years? Because I think you don't need an AGI to create an existential threat. There are two different dimensions, right? You can create an existential threat by just building a highly unreliable autonomous weapon system that doesn't know anything about general intelligence. It only knows how to seek out and kill. And, and that in the wrong hands could really be the existential threat. You could create a virus on the internet that can turn down and bring down all public utilities and emergency systems without it having to know anything about general intelligence. And if that somehow is released without proper testing or controls, 
you could bring down economies and societies. You could have devastations, unfortunately, at the scale of what Puerto Rico and all is going through without a natural you know, hurricane going through it. It could be uh, an AI-powered disaster like that. So I think these are the kinds of outcomes we have to be aware of. These are the kind of outcomes we have to start putting rules and, and, and uh, we have to start putting you know, uh, guidelines and start putting enforcements around. And that's an area, that and skills are the two that I think we are lagging behind significantly today. So the OpenAI initiative is, is an effort to make AI so that one player doesn't develop it, uh, in that case an AGI, but all along the way. So do you think that is a good initiative? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think OpenAI and initiative, we probably need like a hundred other initiatives like that, um, that focus on different aspects of AI. And uh, you know, like what we're doing at AI Austin and AI Global, you know, we are focusing on the ethical use of AI. You know, it's one thing to have a self-driving car, it's another thing to have a self-driving missile, okay? How do you take a self-driving car that ran over four people and how do you cross-examine that in a, in a witness box? How is that AI explainable? Who's responsible for it? So there is a whole new of ethics and laws that have to be considered into putting this into the intelligent products, almost like the underwriter labs equivalent of AI that needs to be woven into every product and every process. And those are the things that our governments uh, need to get aware of and, and our regulators need to get savvy about and start implementing. There's one theory that says, of course, that um, if it's gonna rely on government, that we are uh, all in bad shape because <laughs> the science will develop faster yep. than the legislative ability yep. to respond to it. Yep. Do you have a solution for that? No, I think, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And then particularly against, you know, with what we are seeing recently in the government around technology and stuff, I think there is a, there's a lot of merit to that. I believe, uh, again, the, the results uh, of what we become and what we use AI for will be determined by what we do as private citizens what we do as business leaders, what we do as uh, philanthropists. I mean, uh, one of the beautiful things about America is this whole, you know, things that Gates and, and Buffett and all are doing as, you know, they, they've got more assets than many countries now, and they're putting it to work for responsible, like what Cuban's talking about. So I do have the hope in the great American sort of heart, if you may, about innovation, but also responsible application. And I do believe that people like um, you know, all of us who are in a position to educate and, 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 and manage these things, it's our duty uh, to be able to you know, spread the word and to be able to lean in and start helping and steering this AI towards um, responsible applications. So you, you've, you've touched on some of these. Let's go through your what AI isn't list, your five things. Yeah. Uh, one of them you said, an AI is not natural language processing, and, and that, obviously that is true. What do, do you think, though, the Turing test has any value? Like, if we make a machine that can pass it, does that is that a is that a kind of a benchmark or a bottle? Some some we have done something extraordinary yeah. in that case. You know, when I was running Watson, I used to believe it had value, but I don't believe that anymore as much. I think it has limited value and applicability because of two things. One is, in certain processes where you are replacing the human brain. Um, with a machine, you absolutely need to have some sort of a test to, to prove or not prove. The more exciting part is not replacement of, um, you know, automated or, or repetitive human functions. The more exciting part is things that 
human brain hasn't thought of and hasn't done. I mean, I'll give you an example. We were working at Cognitive Scale with a, a very large media company and we were analyzing Super Bowl TV ads to find out by reading, letting an AI read a video ad to find out exactly what kinds of creative, what, is it kids or puppies or celebrities, at what time have the most impact on creating the best TV ad, right? And what was fascinating in there was we just let the AI run at it. We didn't tell it what to look for. There was no Turing test to say this is good or bad. And the stuff the AI came back with, right, are things that were 10 or 12 level deep in terms of connections it found that a human brain normally would have never thought about. And we still can't describe why there is a connection to it. So it's stuff like that because, you know, the absolute reference is not the human brain. The absolute reference is also, this is the unknown unknown parts I talk about. There are, with AI, you can emulate human cognition, but as importantly with AI, you can extend human cognition. The extension part of coming up with patterns on insights and decisions that the human brain may not have used, I think that's the exciting part about AI. We find when we do projects with customers that there are patterns that we can't explain as a human being why it is, but there is a strong correlation because it's 18 level deep and it's, it's, it's buried in there, but it's a strong correlator. So I kind of put this into two buckets, you know, low level repetitive tasks that the AI can be replaced, and yes, you need a Turing test kind of equivalent. And second is a whole new class of learning that extend human cognition where this is unsupervised learning bit, where you start putting a human in the loop to really figure out and learn new ways of doing business. And I think there is both aspects that we need to be cognizant of and not just trying to emulate a current human brain, which is in many cases proven to be very inefficient in making good decisions. So you, you have a good deal of worry. I mean, you have an enormous amount of optimism about it. You're probably the most optimistic person about the, that I've spoken to about how, how far we can get without a general intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you, you keep identifying, you keep using words about existential threat, a virus that takes out the electrical grid, um, warfare, and, and all of that. And you even use rogue AI in the context of a business. Mm -hmm. Um, in that latter case, uh, how would a rogue AI uh, destroy a business? And, and that's, you can't legislate your way around that, right? I mean, that's not, so what, give me a, give me a rogue AI in an enterprise scenario. Oh, I, there are so many of them, right? So one of them, which actually happened when, when we uh, recently met with a financial institution, a, a large financial institution, we were sitting and having a meeting and suddenly we found out that that particular um, you know, company was going through a massive disruption of business operations because all of their X number of data centers were shutting down every you know, 20 minutes or so and they were rebooting themselves, right? All over the world. Their data centers were just shutting down and rebooting. And they were panicking because this was during the middle of a business day, there were billions of dollars to be transacted and they had no idea why these data centers were doing what they were. Few hours into it, they found out that someone wrote a security bot last month and they launched it into these cloud systems that they have. And for some, of, some reason, that agent felt, that, that AI, that it's a good idea to start shutting down these systems every 20 minutes and rebooting it. So that was a simple example of what now they finally found it, but there was no visibility and governance of that particular AI that was introduced. That's one of the reasons we talk about 
the ability to sort of have a framework for managing visibility and control of these AIs. The other one could be, and this has not happened yet, but this is one of the threats is, um, you look at underwriting. An insurance company uses technology today a lot to start writing underwriting risks. And if for whatever reason, if you have an AI system that sees correlations and patterns but has not been trained well enough on really understanding risk, you could pretty much have the entire business be wiped off by having the AI, if you depend too much on it without explainability and trust, suggesting you to take on risks that will put your business at an existential risk. So, I mean, I can go on and on around, I can use examples around cancer, around diabetes, around, you know, uh, anything to do with commerce where AI is gonna be put to use. Uh, I believe as we fast forward AI, the two words that are gonna become incredibly important for enterprises are lifecycle management of an AI and responsible AI. And, and, and I think that's where there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. That's where I'm excited about what we're doing at cognitive scale through to enable those systems. Two final questions. Um, so, so with those scenarios, um, give me the 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 other side. Give us some success stories you've you've personally seen. They can be cognitive scale or other ones that you've seen it have um, really positive impact on a business. Already I think today. yeah. I think there are many of them. I think one of them. I'll, I'll pick an area in um, retail. Something as simple as retail where through an AI, uh, we were able to demonstrate how a rules-based system, so the, this particular you know, large retailer used to have a mobile app where they presented to you a shirt and a trouser and you know, some accessories, and it was like a Tinder, like hot or not type of a game. And rules-based systems, on average, they were getting you know, less than 10% conversion of what people said are like, and those were all systems that were not learning. When we put an AI behind it, that AI could understand that that particular dress was an off-shoulder dress, that was a teal color, that was an open-toed shoe, that's a shiny leather, and as the customer started engaging with it, the AI started personalizing the output that was being given at a way that we demonstrated 24% conversion to a single-digit conversion that they had over a matter of seven months. And here's the beautiful part, every month, the AI is getting smarter and smarter. And every percentage conversion equals tens of millions of dollars in top line growth. So that's one example of a digital brain, a cognitive digital brain, driving shopper engagement and shopper conversion. The other thing we saw was in the case of um, uh, pediatric asthma. You know, how an AI can help nurses do a much better job of preventing children from having an asthma attack because the AI is able to now read a tweet from Poland.com that says there will be a ragweed outbreak on Thursday morning, and the AI understands that zip code that it's talking about is within your region. Thursday is four days out. I have 17 children with a risk of ragweed or similarities, and it starts tapping the nurse on the shoulder and say, there is an unknown unknown going on here, which is four days from now, there will be a ragweed outbreak. You better get proactive about it and start addressing the kids. So there are examples either in healthcare that we've gone through. There are examples in wealth management, in financial services, around compliance, is how we're using AI to drive improved compliance. There are examples on how we are changing the uh, dynamics of our trader does um, uh, foreign exchange trading, how the trader does um, you know, equities and, and derivatives trading by the AI guiding them through a chat session where the AI is listening in and guiding you as to what to do. So, the examples are many, and uh, you know most of them 
are you know things that are written up in case studies but this is just the beginning and i think this is going to be one of the most exciting innovations uh, that will transform the landscape of uh, businesses over the next five to seven years you know you're, you're totally right about the product recommendation i was on uh, amazon and i bought something i mean it was a book or something and it it said do you want these salt and pepper shaker robots that you wind up and they walk across the table. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> and, and nothing, but it had nothing to do with the thing that, yeah. that I was buying. Yeah. So final question, you've, you've talked about Hollywood talk, setting the narrative for AI. You've mentioned uh, iRobot in passing. Uh, are you a consumer of science fiction? And if so, what vision of the future book or whatever do you think, aha, that's really cool, that could happen, or, or what have you? Well, I think um, probably the closest vision I would have is to Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek. I think that's pretty much a great example of a data quarter helping a human being make a better decision, of a flight deck, a holodeck that is helping you steer. It's still the human being augmented. It's still the human making the decisions around empathy and uh, courage and, and ethics. And I think that's the world that AI is going to take us to, is a world of augmented intelligence where we are being enabled to do much bigger and greater things and not just a world of artificial intelligence where all our jobs are removed and we are nothing but plastic blobs sitting in a chair. Roddenberry said that in the 23rd century there will be no hunger and there will be no greed and all the children will know how to read. Do you believe that? You know, I would, if, if I had a chance to live to be, uh, you know, twice or three times my age, uh, that would be what I'll commit to. In fact, after Cognitive Scale, that is going to be my mission through my foundation. Most of my money I've donated to my foundation, and it will be focused on AI for good, around addressing problems of education, around addressing problems of you know, environment, around addressing problems of uh, conflict. And I do believe um, that's the most exciting frontier where AI will be applied is to make, and there'll be a lot of uh, you know, mishaps along the way. But uh, I do believe as a, as a race and as a humanity, if we make the right decisions, uh, that, is the, that is the end point that uh, we will reach. I don't know if it's 2300, but certainly it's something that I think we will get to. Well, thank you for a fascinating hour. Thank it you is, very much. Uh, really extraordinary, and um, I, I appreciate the time. Thanks, Byron. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.